This morning, I want you to grab your Bibles and go to Exodus chapter 17. I'll share with you some announcements afterwards, but as you make your way to Exodus chapter 17, we're going to look at a passage here today and just see where the Lord will take us this morning. I was uh, contemplating certain scenarios, and as I, you know, stopped playing sports when I was, you know, in middle school, um, I didn't have a personal antidote to think about, but I was, I was you know, struck by the example that happened in 1980, where the American, the U.S. hockey team completely shocked the world. Have you ever heard about the miracle on ice? In 1980, an American team of pretty much all college kids, an amateur team, a team that did not have all the experience, all the years of practice, and they did not have the dynamics of playing with one another as a long, well-seasoned team. This amateur team consisting of these kids were seeded 12 in the tournament, and yet no, no one expected these guys to win, you know, especially the reigning championship team, the Soviet team that held the title for 20 years. This superior, more experienced, well-oiled machine of the Soviet team did not know what was before them. They completely underestimated their opponent. And in 1980, the U.S. team won the gold, and they, and they won over that tournament, and they were the underdogs that were not expected to win. You know, have you ever encountered that? That sometimes, you know, in life, people underestimate us, or we might underestimate a circumstance, and there's, you know, everything is lined up, and it looks like it's not going to happen this way, and yet there's an upset, because somebody somewhere underestimated something. And we sometimes do the same in our spiritual lives. Can I get an amen? We face strong opposition, don't we? This life is not a bed of roses. We go through challenges, don't we? Last night, throwing up kid and crying kid and the baby screaming as well. And we go through challenges. It's all part and parcel, right? It's all part of the blessing, but we go through challenges. We engage in battles and we engage in wars. And sometimes, because we underestimate the battle, we face defeat. So today, looking at Exodus chapter 17, I want us to look at a situation here, a story. And I see this played out in the scriptures. I want us to take a look at redemption history through the, the people of God, the Israelites. I want us to look at what happened with them and see that there's a couple of things that we need to be uh, clued into. We need to be aware of. We should not underestimate and be prepared if we are going to experience success and victories and not be met with defeat because of something so silly as an underestimation of our opponents, of our war, and of the victory. And so today, Exodus 17, you're there, say amen. Amen. I want us to take a look at verse 8. Tells us here, Exodus 17, verse 8. While the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephaim, Rephidim. Father, I thank you for uh, your scripture here. I thank you, Lord God, for what you're going to share with us. Lord, I just pray that you would open up our ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. 
And God, that you would encourage us, embolden us, and strengthen us, Lord Jesus, with truths that lead us and guide us, that gives us victory, and Father, overwhelms and overcomes the struggles of this world. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing I want us to take a look at this morning is that if we are going to face battles and overcome battles in our lives, if we are going to be victorious as Christians, as God's people, then we have to, number one, know our enemy. It tells us here in Exodus chapter 17, as the Israelites had left Egypt and they are going to the promised land, God is leading them to a place that he has for them, a victorious place, a place of promise. It tells us that there, as they're at Rephidim, that the enemy, the Amalekites, attacked them. And now, for many of us, we might be unfamiliar with this name. Amalek. Who's that? What is that? Amalekites. There's all these ites in the Bible, right? The parasites, Jebusites, you know, Raphites, and and all these different ites that are there, people groups and and descendants of of people that became, you know, strong nations and, and, and difficult opponents for the people of God. You might not know Amalekite, but have you heard of Esau? Maybe you've heard of Esau. This is Esau, you know, who was the twin brother of Jacob. Well, Esau happens to be Amalek's grandfather. And so we have heard the story of Esau or Jacob. And if you haven't heard that story, well, let me just tell you that they were the sons of Isaac. And Isaac was the son of Abraham. And so maybe you've heard of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Esau is the brother of Jacob. It's within this this, you know, ancestry that we find this person that comes through eventually by the name of Amalek. And Esau was the very same Esau who quarreled with his brother ever since the womb. These guys shared a womb and they were rivals from the jump. From that very first moment, you know, as Esau was coming out of his mother's womb, Jacob grabbed onto his heel as to pull him back in. And all throughout their lives, as they're growing up, there's a competition, a rivalry amongst these two brothers. This is the very same Esau, the grandfather of Amalek, who one day, tired and weary from hunting all day, from being out there doing what he loved and and catching game, bringing food back to his family, uh, Esau comes home tired and hungry. And he smells a pot of stew, a pot of soup that his brother Jacob has made. This is the very same Esau who in that moment of hunger and and, and weariness, he smells that soup and he yearns for it and and he wants it and he tells his brother, give me a cup of soup. Hook me up, brother. And his brother says, yeah, but not unless if you, not until, not before you promise to me, you pledge to me, you relinquish to me your birthright as the first son, as the firstborn until, you know, I will give you a bowl of soup, but you got to first give me that which is reserved for you. You came out first, but I wanted to be first. You have the blessing. One day you'll get the full inheritance. You'll get the greater inheritance as the firstborn son. Can I have that? If you say yes, I'll give you a bowl of soup. And in that moment, Esau, this very same Esau, who um, felt it was more important to have a bowl of soup. How can I ever show up one day to receive an inheritance if I'm going to be so hungry and so famished and so broken by not eating right now 
that inheritance means nothing for me. So absolutely, just give me the bowl of soup. You can have my inheritance. You can have my birthright. And so he trades. Maybe you've heard of that story. And so here in this moment, we, we find that there is a man by the name of Amalek, and there's a descendant, the group of people, warriors from the tribe of Amalek, the Amalekites. These are the same people who have descended from Esau, and maybe they're contemplating that which they see Israel. The people of Israel are the descendants of Jacob. They are from the same stock and the same seed and the same vein and branch as those people over there. That Jacob that came and stole that which would have been Hours. The Amalekites were the people who held a grudge. And they contemplating that which they did not have now because somebody before them had given it up. And so as the Israelites are now within range and close to their region, these guys get up and they attack the people of God, they attack the Israelites considering, look at all the riches and all the blessings and all the opportunities that would have come to us, yet it's in their hands and they possess it and they are the blessed ones. And you know what? Even though we're cousins here, we're, we're distant family here, they still come and attack the Israelites because of a grudge from the get-go. There's a grudge. And notice with me in verse 8, and if you were to read the verses prior in chapter 17, you'll find that there is no, no, no instigation from Israel. The Israelites just have showed up in the area. They're in the region. They are not instigating whatsoever. They have not come and stolen any of the herds of the Amalekites. They have not come and taken over any of their lands. They have not come in and, and not even drank out of their own wells. They, they're not stealing water supply from the Amalekites. They are simply there. There is no provocation, and yet here this group has come. See, God, in time and time again, before this moment, he's led them beautifully out of, out of Egypt. He's provided for them food in the desert. Manna, you know, has rained down. He's provided quail in the, the form of meat to come in the form of quail so that they could eat. And when they were thirsty and there was no waters, you know, they, they came to a place called Merah, and there the waters were bitter, and God healed the waters that they would be able to drink. And when they came to Rephidim and they're here in this place and there is no waters for them to drink, what happens? God tells Moses, strike the rock and I will make water flow. And so it's not like they're stealing anything from the Amalekites. There is no provocation and yet the enemy strikes and it hits fiercely. There is no reason unless if you count that grudge. And here's another detail. If you were to go and look at another situation that's found within Deuteronomy, if we look at chapter 25, I believe it is, if you go down there and you'll realize uh, that there's more details about the Amalekites. When Moses is recounting the history of what God's done and his faithfulness to the people, he's recounting to them the law and he's giving to them down the road. He's going to share with them this story. He says, remember what the Amalekites did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were longing or lagging behind you and he did not fear God. The Amalekites were brutal. 
and ruthless. They were fierce. And they came like a a coalition of cheetahs closing in on an injured wildebeest. They showed up and they attacked those who were weary and weak in the back of the line, in the back of the march. They came and they took out those who were separated and isolated. Those who couldn't keep up because they were hurting. They came and they destroyed those individuals first. See, church, I want us to just focus a little bit on this enemy, the Amalekites, because there's a lot of contra- there's a lot of similarities between them and our enemy. Can I get an amen? amen. Now, did you know you have an enemy? Oh, yes. Okay. And your enemy is not the person, okay, that you woke up next to. For those who are married, somebody praise God. Your enemy is not that person who is cutting you off on the road. Your enemy is not that boss that you are having a hard time with. If that's me for my employees, I'm sorry, forgive me. I'm trying. Your enemy is not these folks. It's not your classmate who's constantly trying to one-up you, David. It's not those who are trying to get that promotion before you. He's not, she is not your enemy. See, we have an enemy, and friends, that enemy is very clear within the scriptures. It tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present age of darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We have an enemy, and his name is Satan and his demons. We have an enemy that's alive and active and he's absolutely working in this world. And he is intent on destroying God's people. As Christians, our enemy is this foe. And just like Amalek, our enemy acts. Our enemy moves. Our enemy too harbors a grudge and it's a grudge that he's nursed ever since the garden. See, what he most wanted to, was to be like God, if not to be greater than God. He wanted to have that which God had. And so when God in the garden, he gets down on that dirt and he forms man and he makes man and woman in his image and likeness and breathes the breath of life inside through the Holy Spirit into man. He gives to mankind that which the enemy wanted, to be like God, to be made in God's image. And so for that reason alone, he is intent on destroying you because you bear the image of God that he does not. He wants nothing more than to see you defeated, destroyed, and devoured because you have what he covets. He has something that is able to relate to God that he cannot. We are made in God's image and likeness. And so... From that very beginning in the gardens, when when Adam and Eve committed their sin, they fell out of the craftiness of the serpent that came and manipulated and twisted God's words. It tells us from that very moment when God stepped in and he spoke and he declared what would be the curses and the consequences of that sin, he speaks to the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So ever since our enemy needs no other reason other than this grudge 
his hatred and his envy for you alone will fuel him to relentlessly attack us. And he does. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, he says, your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking whom he shall devour. So be alert and sober-minded. We have to be careful and cautious because he indiscriminately attacks. He has no passion. He has no love. He has no, no consideration. He is ruthless and he will attack. Because of that one reason. And let's think about that ruthlessness. It tells us, similarly like Amalek, throughout the scriptures, if we look, that he often targets those who are the weakest. He looks for moments and opportunities to step in and wreak havoc on our lives when we are unawares. If we look at the life of Jesus Christ before his uh, public ministry began, he was baptized in, in the Jordan and then he went off into the wilderness and he went to spend time with the Lord. He's praying and he's fasting. And it tells us after a period of 40 days that Jesus is there fasting and praying in the desert, dedicating himself, preparing himself for the ministry that he's going to fulfill of preaching the gospel and declaring the good news of God, healing the sick and casting out demons before he is going to go do that he's in the wilderness and at the end of those 40 days who shows up satan satan shows up in that moment and he starts to tempt jesus his desires this is the moment he's weak imagine 40 days without eating imagine how tired jesus was we know that he was tired because it tells us that after he resisted the devil that angels came and ministered and nourished him because he had spent those 40 days and if the enemy was so bold, okay, let's not kid ourselves. If he was so bold to come and try to tempt the very son of God to dishonor and sin against God, who are we to believe that he will not come and try to tempt us and take us down the path of destruction? Who are we? If he was bold against Jesus, how much more so will he be against us? Friends, we need to be aware. We need to be waiting and watching because he is waiting and watching, seeking to devour and pounce. It tells us, be careful because sin is at your door, ready to devour you. Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And so it is important for us to be aware that there is an enemy who has a desire to devour us. But hey, church, how many of us are always looking for the enemy? enemy around every curtain and every door see some of us we are so consumed at this up you know at, at this idea that it's satan and satan did it and satan's doing this and this and that and you know what he doesn't always just show up and say here i am i'm satan how's it going this is my temptation for you this morning he doesn't announce himself and so if he if he can get us to just think that our only enemy is him that he is the one, our foe, and he is the one who's going to attack us and lead us astray, and that's all we are consumed with, then we miss out on this very important tool and tactic that he uses, that he will come under, uh, come, come over and try to influence and manipulate, and that is the enemy of our sinful de desires. So yes, we have an enemy called Satan, but we also have an enemy called our sinful desires. And, you know, the Bible often talks about this word. He defines this term or this idea as the word the flesh. 
It's often shared in that way. See what Paul says in Romans chapter seven, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And if we jump down to verse 21 of Romans chapter seven, he says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, Evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my members doing another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Spoiler alert, church. There is a war that's being fought within us. There is a temptation that the enemy will utilize to try to keep us defeated and devoured. There is a battle that is happening in every Christian's life. There's not a person that is outside of that reality. While we may not be ruled by sin as we once were when we were away from Christ or out of Christ and not under his rule and his sovereignty, nevertheless, sin tugs at our hearts continuously. It tugs trying to get a breach and find a foothold and, and, and crack the door open to jump right in. Sin is tugging at our hearts every day and every moment it can. It tugs at our body. It tugs at our mind. It yearns for gratification. Like Esau, it says, hey, you, you need some soup right now. You need some food right now. Don't worry about that inheritance down the road. Don't worry about that thing that you may not even get to. What if you were met with an accident before that happens? But yet right now you need some soup. Right now you want to satisfy. You want instant gratification. And so Sin would tug at our heart and say, hey, forget that thing which you can, that blessing which you can pass on from generation to generation to generation to generation. Forget the legacy of what you're going to establish. Forget the, the beauty of what you're going to fulfill if you just remain faithful. Forget about that right now. Just look at this beautiful, beautiful thing. And that thing can be whatever. That thing could be, you know, look at this beautiful opportunity of power and, and recognition. Look at this, what you could have before you that, you know what, you can reject everything else. Look at this beautiful person that you can just engage with right now and satisfy your lust. Look at this incredible uh, amount of food that you can just gorge yourself on. And whatever it is, it doesn't have to be something so blatantly wrong, but anything out of its proper proportion becomes something that he can use so that we would not give glory to God or our affections to the Lord, but we would put our dependency, our focus, our love, our, our yearnings upon that which is not for us, not meant to be our fulfillment. There's this enemy that's fighting within us, and we must first know that he's there. But then if we look at this verse, let's look here in chapter 17. It tells us that as soon as the Amalekites fought and warred against the Israelites, verse 9, Moses commanded Joshua, choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill holding the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of the nearby hill. As long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hand, and the Amalekites gained the advantage. 
See, the first thing we need to understand if we're going to win the battle that's happening around us is that we have an enemy. But secondly, we need to learn how to fight. We need to know how to fight. It tells us here in verse 9 that Moses immediately told them, you guys need to go out and fight intentionally. You have to become intentional at this fight. In this war, we're going to have to get into the arena. We need to get onto the battlefield. We need to step in and fight because we cannot be passive in this. Moses commanded, and it was an instruction for them. As he said, Joshua, get up and go. I want you to get up and find some choice warriors. I want you to amass an army of people that are going to fight. Find the group of people that will step onto the front lines. You need to put on some armors. You need to take up your weapons. You need to get ready for the battle. Go. If you're under the impression that in this walk with Jesus, in this Christian life, you can sit back and say, the Lord's got it. You're misinformed. I love that statement that says, let go and let God. But it's not an invitation for you to let go and do nothing. It's not an invitation for you to just sit back, kick back your, your feet and say, Lord, I thank you for your burden is light. Your yoke is easy and I do nothing. That's not how it goes. Letting go and letting God is a model only for those who can, can state it after they've done everything within their own power. It's a model for those who have been intentional at doing what they can in order to fulfill the issue. When Jesus declared from that cross, one of the seven statements from the cross, it is finished. He did not mean it is finished for you to sit down and relax, grab a bag of chips, and that's it. It's you're supposed to do some war. There is more that Jesus wants to, yes, he is finished in the sense he accomplished the victory. It is finished where he has purchased our salvation. It is finished where there is no additional sacrifice needed but he still wants to fulfill more within our lives he still wants more for us he wants to lead us into more he wants us to experience more of his presence he wants us to experience more of his freedom he wants us to war and experience more of his purpose he wants more for his children and for his church can somebody say amen, amen. and so if there is more that Jesus wants to bring out of us, we need to become intentional. He said, Joshua, grab some guys and go to fight. There was a group that had to go to fight. And so when we realize that there is a war, we need to do some things intentionally that it's in the realm of fighting. We need to understand how we fight. There is no comfortable Christian. There is no prevailing if we're going to just sit back. And so we need to recognize part of getting on the arena is recognizing our weakness areas. What are the places that we are not strong? Where are the places that we're struggling? What sins entangle and entice us? We're not all tempted by the same thing. As Hebrews says, be careful of the sin that easily entangles you. What are the things that affect you may not be the things that affect me. And so it's important for us to be aware of what is affecting us maybe for some of us it's chasing power you're elevating yourself above others you're trying to compete with your colleagues and your co-workers and you're constantly belittling everybody else and up uh, one-upping everybody else 
because that is the sin that easily entangles. Maybe for some of us, we're tempted to compromise so that we can have more riches, so that we can have more security. We want to amass more money and more resources and more you know, opportunities. And so we are driven by that passion and that zeal. And that might be the sin that easily entangles. Maybe for some others, it might be pleasure. We are enticed by everything that the world has to offer. And we want to satisfy the yearnings of the flesh no matter how it comes because that is how we are entangled. We must be aware of the weakness that Satan wants to dangle in front of us. It's different from all of us. But the point is all of us have it. All of us have a struggle. All of us have something that we need to say, Lord Jesus, have mercy and help me because you have finished the work. I need to continuously fight on this work and fight on this, on this cause and work my salvation out in this circumstance. Help me, Lord Jesus. We need to recognize where we're weak, but we also need to recognize when we're weak. You know what? There, there's a strategy that the enemy employs. Realize that often his, his battles, his, his attacks come on the heels of a victory. Often it comes on the heels of something that we've just experienced, a high with the Lord. You know, I found myself in this hospital this past week and I'm there. I'm just, Lord, I'm doing your will. I'm here. It says that I am to minister to my family first and foremost. Those who don't minister and take care of the needs of their families are worse than the unbelieving sinners, as it says in the New Testament through the words of Paul to Timothy. And so it's important for us to be aware that I, you need to do that. And I'm there in the hospital. I'm like, Lord Jesus, I'm good. I'm doing what, what I need to be doing. I'm here with my family. I'm holding my baby. I'm enjoying this moment. I'm nurturing this moment and I'm appreciating this moment because it's going to pass. And Lord Jesus, this is all good. And in the comfort of that victory and the comfort of that, you know, incredible pleasure and joy that was there, you know, I find myself being callous not to pray. And I'm not concerned about keeping up with my devotions. Came a point when my wife fell asleep one of the days. I'm like, all right, where is that devotional book that I've, I've been reading? And I cracked it open. And as that baby was just in my arm, I'm just there reading. And Lord, I, forgive me, Lord Jesus, for I felt like I was lax and I was okay. I didn't need you at this moment. I'm good. I'm solid. I'm not committing a sin. But Lord, I'm seeing that my dependence, my joy, my satisfaction is coming on me holding this baby as opposed to me depending and resting in you. Father, forgive me for this moment. And that is something silly and simple, it might seem, but you know what, in, if we don't guard our private time with the Lord, if we don't guard our time with the Lord Jesus and, and our affections towards him, we can become much more susceptible to the enemy's attack when he comes. We must fight with intentionality, but how do we fight? If you look at this, verse 9 through 11, tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Wherever Moses held, whenever Moses held up that hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hands, Amalek prevailed. See, church, we must fight in this fight, in this battle with dependency. We need to depend upon God. Everything down in the valley depended on what Moses was doing up on that hill. Everything down in the front lines of that battle depended on what was happening on that mountaintop prayer. Everything depended on that experience. As Moses was victorious, as he pressed into God and depended upon the Lord, Joshua and the armies of Israel were victorious. But as he lowered his hands, they started to wane. 
And I've thought about this. I've read this story and I'm like, wow, Lord Jesus, you've given Moses this staff. And when Moses was questioning God, when he was about to go lead the people out of Israel, as God commissioned him to go to Pharaoh, he's like, Lord, what am I going to do? Who am I going to say who sent me? He says, I am that I am has sent you. Tell him that I have sent you. And see that staff within your hand, take that. And I will will do exploits with that thing. And he told Moses to use that staff. And we see in 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 the 10 plagues of Egypt, and the miracles that happened before they left. It was time and time again, that staff in his hands, the power of God within his hands was what he used to affect miracles. It parted the Red Sea. It turned the, the denial into blood. It caused water to gush out of a, of a stone. Many times that staff was the answer. It was, the, it was something that demonstrated God's power. And so I, I've stopped and I considered this Lord Jesus in his hand. It doesn't say necessarily that he had it, but I can't imagine Imagine Moses, all of this time walking with the Lord and seeing miracles after miracles is not going to take that staff and use that staff and walk with that staff and, and, and raise up that staff before the Lord as he's praying. There was a point in the story of the Israelites and the snakes were coming through, venomous snakes were in the wilderness biting them. It tells us that Moses lifted up a standard. He took a bronze statue of a serpent and he put it up there and he raised it and that became the raised staff that caused people to be healed from the diseases and from the, from the venomous snakes that were biting them. I, I see Moses lifting this up and we might miss out on this, but That is a posture of prayer. For the Hebrew people, raised hands was a posture of prayer. As Moses was up on that mountain, he wasn't just there perched on that hill looking at the battle and saying, okay, great. But I imagine Moses there furiously praying and interceding and asking God for his mercies, depending upon God, Lord Jesus, there is Joshua, there is our people. Lord, you have promised to take us from the land of Egypt into a promised land. God, you are doing something. You said you were going to bless the nations through this people. So Lord, I'm calling and beseeching upon you and your plans. I'm depending on your promises. I'm asking you, Lord God, to be faithful to your word. Lord, I am calling upon you. The staff is in my hands. This opportunity, this power that you have given me, I am placing it back within you and I'm calling upon it. God, I need you to move on this circumstance. And he was praying, depending on God. These are the people you entrusted under my care, the people you've made promises to. And I'm up here, Lord God. I can't do a single thing for them. I'm not fighting the battle. They are. But Lord God, I'm joining the fight by praying and depending on you. And so I need you to understand, church, that when Amalek came and fought against the Israelites, there was two groups of people. There was a group of people that went to the front lines, but then there was an equally important, and I would say greatly important people that stayed behind. Moses, Ur, and Aaron, they stayed behind on that hill, and they're praying. And I want you to understand that it is important for there to be prayer if we're going to win and overcome battles. Some of us are just going into the fray and we got our armor, we got our weapons, we get, we're equipped with our will and our intellect, we're equipped with our resumes and with our, our, our resources and all these different things, and yet we go into battle without the very real resource and power that is prayer. We are fighting everything on our own accord and everything within our own power and strength and, and know-how and wisdom which is faulty in its own, and we're trying 
designed to affect change and, and change hearts and circumstances and bring resolution and mediate between issues and family members and challenges. And we're going at it all on our own. And yet God is there showing us in the scriptures that without Moses, Ur, and Aaron on the mountain, there was no victory. And some of us, we might stop and think, well, okay, I need to pray, and I don't know how to pray, and maybe I'm not praying sufficiently, and I don't have enough prayer power, and, and you know what, I can't overcome this issue and this challenge, and, and maybe there's nobody else praying for me, but let me tell you, there is one that is mediating for you ever since he got out of this earth and he went to the throne room of, of God. Jesus Christ is ever interceding on your behalf, so if, if you can say that there is not a single person joining me and partnering with me, Spurgeon said, I am well and successful because my people pray for me if there is not a person praying for you take heart that jesus christ has never stopped ceasing in praying for you he prays for you today and maybe you just need to get some more prayer partners you need to start calling some men and women of faith and saying can you join me in this i need you to help me pray over this i got a circumstance in a situation that you know what i've done everything within my power i've been intentional i've learned i've done i've gone to the doctors i've i've, I've asked for wisdom i studied I've, I've researched this issue i've taken steps to remedy the situation and pacify the problem and resolve the conflict i'm not just sitting back saying oh, god's got it the lord's gonna do it but you know what, I've done everything within my power and nothing's working, but I need you to help me. Join me in prayer. Can you put your uh, prayer focus with me? Can you join me? Because when two or three are gathered in his name, there he is also. Where two or three agree upon touching anything in his name, it shall be done, it shall be loosed, it shall be bound, it shall be done for us because there is power in agreeing prayer. Amen. R.A. Torrey said this, all that God is and all that God has are at the, the disposal of prayer. Prayer can do anything God can do. As God can do anything, prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful. But it's in community. It's in unity. It's intentional going out to fight, knowing your weakness, knowing the enemy. And it's a partnership with joining in in spiritual discipline of praying and calling forth that which isn't as if it was and calling upon God's promises, reciting back his word to him, praying the scriptures back to the Lord and also praying the scriptures in view of your enemy, in earshot of your enemy. Oh, you gotta say that about me? You're condemning me about this right now? Saying, well, let me just tell you about what my God has said about you, that there will be enmity, but he will crush your head and I am more than victorious. And so you start declaring the words of God back to your enemy and you wait and see God's faithfulness and goodness. Amen? One more thing, and I'm, we'll keep going here. We must fight intentionally. We must fight with dependency. But you know what? As we're fighting this battle, how are we going to fight? We have to fight within community. We have to fight in community. There was Aaron and Hur was right there next to Moses when Moses was getting weak and his arms were tired. And I don't care if Moses was the best, the biggest, the, 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 the Guinness Book of World Record bodybuilder, he would have gotten tired eventually because there's no human being that can keep their hands up indefinitely. There's no human being that can just raise and, and lift up their hands with, for, for endless periods of time. And as he waned and got weary, 
He got tired in doing good. He got tired in interceding. It started to cause uh, the victory to be slipped from the hands of the Israelites into the hands of the Amalekites. And so Aaron and her prop him up on the stone. They put him on the solid rock and say, hey, just, just take a seat right here. Let's prop you up so that you're not just standing. And let me come by your side and lift up your arm. And let me lift up your arm. And as these two men stood side by side beside Moses, they kept his arms lifted to heaven until the sun set that day. And the victory was Joshua's. Joshua was able to overcome that enemy. Why? Because there were men of faith that stood beside Moses church have you ever found yourself saying Lord I'm going to have an incredible prayer devotional with you this morning God I'm going to have the best prayer meeting that I have have ever had with you tonight before I go to bed Lord, today we're going to do some business. Today, God, I'm going to rend the heavens and we're going to have an incredible intimate moment and I'm going to be enriched and situations are going to change and things are going to be amazing. How many of us have gone to a moment of prayer and intended to pray fervently and passionately before the Lord and do the hard work of prayer? Because you know what? Prayer is hard. If you don't believe that, just look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Prayer is not something that we come to and just say, oh, Lord Jesus, by the way, here we go. Prayer, when it's done right, prayer, when it's done with the heart of God, prayer, when it's done to actually affect change and to bring about circumstances that are not and change the the, the layout of the field of battle is a prayer that is going to cost us something. It's a prayer that's going to be difficult and arduous to the point that Jesus, as he prayed, he sweated blood. He told his disciples, I want you guys to watch and pray. He, take, he took them to the garden. He said, watch and pray. I got to pray. Lord, let this cup pass for me. And he's arduously praying to the Lord. And yet, his disciples, who said, just like us, we're going to have the best prayer meeting we've ever had. We're going to touch heaven today. We're going to do incredible exploits in prayer and accomplish incredible things today. They are found doing what? Sleeping. Hey, I'm guilty. I'm not pointing fingers. Lord, I'm going to have an incredible moment. We're going to pray and it's going to be awesome. And then I'm praying. And hey, I'm not even sleepy at times. But all of a sudden, in the middle of my prayer, I'm praying for a loved one or a situation or a circumstance. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking about the news. Anybody? Hello? Hello? I'm praying, and as I'm praying and seeking the Lord, and I'm I'm crying out for God for a circumstance, all of a sudden I'm thinking of my to-dos. All of a sudden, in the middle of my prayer, I'm wandering off to something that that person said to me, and I'm not, not happy about it now. But yeah, God, we're going to do some incredible business. We're going to pray. We're going to rend the heavens, and it's going to be an incredible night. Ah, and, and before, I, I've learned this much. I don't ever pray before bed on my bed because I know where that's going to end up. I'm going to keep praying in my dreams. Hopefully, doesn't quite often happen. <laughs> then I got nightmares about something else or something else is going on in my dreams or I have no, night, no, no dreams at all, but yet I'm sleeping. And when I wake up, I'm like, wait, what was I saying? I, I was actually praying. Lord Jesus, forgive. And I start the morning asking for forgiveness. You know, praying is a difficult thing. In the sense that the enemy is doing everything that he can to distract us and dissuade us and lead us astray. 
He doesn't want us to focus our attention and our efforts in connecting with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one that has all the answers within his hand, the one that can release. We do not have, for we do not ask, for we do not pray. He doesn't want us to understand those realities, and so he does everything in his power to impede us from praying. And so as we pray in community, let me just tell you the benefits and the blessing that's there. See, I never find myself when I'm here praying in our Tuesday night prayer meeting or, or when I have the privilege and opportunity to come at 12 o'clock and pray with the team. That hasn't happened so often, but you know, when we have the privilege to, to come together in a corporate setting and pray, I find it a lot harder for me to go astray and fall asleep. I find it a lot harder for me to just start snoring in the middle of a prayer meeting. Why? Because there are others there. And as people are praying and interceding, I hear their prayers and their prayers encourage me. As I hear them approaching things from a different angle and perspective and I, and I capture their burden and their zeal as they're praying, it, it invigorates and it fires me up to want to connect more with the Lord. And it causes me to stay on task, on target. As we come together, not only that, but I, I, I get to have my brothers and my sisters lift up my own burdens and I feel encouraged that you know what although I might feel like I'm all alone there's others who are going through struggles and challenges the same as I am if not worse and so as we come together and corporately praying we encounter the blessings that there is in community that God wants us to pray that's why we pray here during church service that's why we pray together on Tuesday night corporate prayer meeting that's why the team comes and every Monday through Saturday from 12 to 1 they pray because it's an opportunity to come together and, and bind up each other's burdens and lift up something, agree together in effect and rend the heavens and bring something to pass. We pray corporately because it affects much. This is why we do it. Now let me just bring you one more thing and we'll wrap it up here today. If we look at verse 13, it says, And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of the Amalekites from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, I hand uh, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, and the Lord will have war with Amalek. From generation to generation. See, church, I want you to see here that in this text, as Moses is up on the hill, he's fighting the battle through prayer with her and Aaron beside him. Joshua is down in the valley fighting on the front lines and he has soldiers warring and the enemy is being defeated. Joshua was able to overcome and overwhelm Amalek in the battle, yet it is God who overcame Amalek in the war. It tells us right here that Joshua overwhelmed them with the sword. But then God gives Moses a word. He says, tell them this, write this down. I will wage war with the Amalekites until they are completely blotted out. See, Joshua goes and fights a battle and he wins a victory, yet they will continuously have to fight the same enemy. Church, how familiar does that sound? Jesus says it is finished, yet we have an enemy that is deaf and dumb and he continues to come and fight and war against us. The Amalekites became a thorn in their side, so much so that when the first king of Israel 
was elected, King Saul. Saul failed to fully destroy the Amalekites, and the Amalekites were the ones who killed Saul. David, the king, after God's own heart, would later on have to fight the Amalekites himself to the very times of Esther. If you look at the descendants and the ancestry of Haman, he was of the Amalekite stock. This is an enemy that will have to be fought again and again. And it was not the ingenuity of man. It was not the prowess of a military commander. It was not the resources of a people. It was not the, the, the brains and the brawn and, and the opportunities of man that was able to overcome this enemy. It is God and God himself. I shall be your banner. And I will destroy this enemy. Moses builds a memorial and he records this victory and he gets that revelation. The Lord is my banner. When in ancient times and in armies, when they got, these guys went to war, they would take a banner, they would take a flag, they would take a sign and they would use that as a rallying point for their armies. They would put it up on a hill and go before it in battle and they would be, that, that was what would rally the people and they would come to fight and have hope and experience faith as they're fighting for their flag, for their banner. They look upon their strength and they move forward. Church, I want you to just realize Jesus Christ is our banner. Jesus Christ is our flag. He's the one whom we have the victory. He's the one whom we turn to. He is the one that is fighting the battle and who has already um, ascertained it. He has confirmed it. He has uh, consolidated it. It is official. He has won the victory for us. And so when we come into this battle, the enemy shows up in front of us uh, or he shows up in our earthly flesh, in our sinful nature. As he shows up, what banner is the banner that is over us is the banner of Jesus. Christ. We need to look to our Lord and say, Jesus, you are our Savior. You are going to give us victory in this moment. I'm praying to you. I need your help. I need your sovereignty to reign over me. I need to rally with forces and strength towards you, God. You can work this out in me in this moment. Jesus is the banner. If we look, Jesus is all over this passage. I'm going to invite the team to just, just just do some melodies in the background and softly. I, I want you to just realize here that Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. Jesus Christ is the banner that I don't know if many of us uh, realize in the very present need when we're in that difficult challenge, when temptation is running rampant in our life, we can run to him and fall under his flag. Is our identity found in him? Is our strength dependent upon Him? Is our hope within Him? Are we doing everything within our power as He's told us to? As our flag, He's given us commandments. He's given us strategies to overcome. Are we coming to Him and depending under His flag? One of the most prolific portraits of the raising of the flag was the U.S. flag that was raised in Iwo Jima. It's an iconic photograph. I don't know if you've seen it, and there's statues that's been made of it, of six Marines raising up the U.S. flag on top of Mount Suribachi during the Battle of Iwo Jima. It was the final days of the Pacific War. Many historians say that it was one of the final battles that helped to win the war in the Pacific. The U.S. flag planted 
there at the top of that mountain served as a banner and a standard for the soldiers in the great conflict. As they looked up at that flag, they drew strength and resolve to continue fighting. I want you to stop and consider, are you under the flag of Jesus Christ this morning? Some of us here, we've been just falling prey and victim to all these different struggles and strategies of the enemy. And yet there's a flag that's available for you. As you are going through challenges and succumbing to the same sin and temptation, feeling hopeless without change, there's everything within you that you want to do and accomplish and overcome this, yet you can't. There's a flag that's raining. And it's up on the hill. For he is praying over you, saying, you can do this. Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, Peter. He wants to sift you like wheat, Sam. He wants to totally destroy you, Janet. He wants to get you out, Sandra. But I have prayed over you, for I am your banner. I am interceding before the Father on your behalf, and you have won the victory because I am for you. Some of us, I don't know if in this room there are some who've never come to experience the freedom and the hope and the life that is found in Jesus Christ. I want everybody in here to just raise, to stand up right now and just close your eyes. If there's a person in here and you've never accepted Jesus and said, Lord, I need to stand under your banner and say, Lord, you are for me. Forgive me of my sins. Then I want you to right now today to make that right. Make that change. Don't leave here to fight an enemy that is a very real and active, intent on destroying you. The enemy comes to seek, kill, and destroy is what John tells us. Don't leave here without the covering of the banner of the Lord, without a relationship with Jesus Christ. If that's you today, I want you to just say this prayer with me and, and know that it's not just a prayer you're saying, but it's, it's a commitment that you're making to begin a journey. I want you to say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. Be Lord of my life. Forgive me of my sins as you alone can. You are the sinless son of God who came to earth, died on a cross for the sake of my sins. But you rose again from the dead. And now you reign victoriously with God. Forgive me and help me live for you. Amen. If you pray that prayer for the very first time, I want you to see me after service. I want to encourage you and talk to you. For the rest of us, and we've already prayed that prayer, I want you to just contemplate what flag are you under today? Is it the flag of your own ingenuity and strength? flag of your own resources and bank accounts? Is it the flag of your own intellect and degrees and your educational background? Is it the flag of your family and relationships and all the people that are around you that you feel brings you victory? Is it the flag of your career and your purpose? None of that's going to help you when the enemy comes attacking. None of that will give you the victory. The only thing that will is Jesus Christ. 
So if there's any sin that you need to ask God for his forgiveness today, anything that you need to ask him, Lord, God, give me strategies to be able to overcome this in my life because, Lord, I need to be victorious. There are generations that are depending upon me overcoming this battle. My home depends on it. My family depends on it. This community depends on it. There are others who I will get to meet and know that I need to be strong and ready, victorious in order to impact and bless. Whatever that is, I want you to make an altar of your space or you come to these altars here. The altar is not a place where you come to to satisfy me and tell me that I did a good job preaching. It's a place where you can come and rend the heavens and like Moses, lift up an arm and say, Lord God, I'm depending upon you. It's an expression of your faith to say, Lord God, I am needing, I'm showing you a change in my countenance and my position and demonstrating to you an act of faith that I want you to step into my circumstance. I'm going to touch the hem of your garments. I'm going to reach up into heavens and I'm going to reach out and touch you, Lord. You're going to touch my circumstance. Let me bless you. Father, I thank you for this word, and I thank you, Lord God, for what you're establishing and doing in our hearts and our lives. Thank you for all the victories. You did, in fact, one day fully annihilate the Amalekites. Not because you're a hateful God, but because They attacked your people in such a brutal way and you've given them chances to repent and turn and yet they would not, Lord. And so, Father, your judgment that's there, where holiness requires your judgment, Lord, I pray that, Lord, you would allow us to see the swift victory that you have for each and every one of us. God, I pray whatever sin easily entangles your children this morning, that today was the last day, Lord God, Today was the last day that that sin held any sway over their heart, any sway over their affections. Lord, I pray that today be the day that you break off addictions, that you break off, Lord God, uh, grudges, that you break off, Lord Jesus, offenses, that you break off, Lord God, every trauma and every debilitating um, circumstance that have robbed your church from experience the fullness of your joy, the fullness of your promise, and the greatness of your blessing. In your precious name I pray. God bless. May the love of God, the peace of Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you as you go from this place. These altars are open. Have a wonderful week. Be empowered and let God use you. Amen.